This is the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition with Peter Gowers. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. Weekends with Walshy starts now. Hello and welcome to you. This is the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition. It's also known as Weekends with Walshy. And as that bloke just said, my name's Peter Gowers. I'd like to head straight now to the NT Independent Online Newspaper. Let's catch up with the editor, Chris Walsh. Walshy, how are you, mate? Hey, I'm good, Pete. Good to see you again this week. Good to see you too. And uh, I hope you enjoyed your week uh, down in Adelaide and the South Australian region. Did you have a bit of fun down there? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was nice and cool. It was nice and cool. Oh, We're not getting be. much of a dry season here, so it was good to get down to a place that I think the daytime high might have got up to 14 for oh. yeah, the whole week we were there. Wow. But and, um, that's what we wanted. <laughs> and I presume you were uh, using a company credit card to pay for your fuel while you were away? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I wish I had a taxpayer-funded credit card to <laughs> use for fuel. That wasn't cheap. Uh, yeah, probably they could use it to pay for a ferry from the mainland to uh, Kangaroo Island, mm. like we did. That's the, the somebody told me, yeah, the most expensive ferry in the, the world, and it's a 45 minute little haul. You drive your car on over there, maybe they can fit 20 cars on it, and yeah, at over 45 minutes, $500. So, wow, yeah, it would have, uh, was yeah. it worth it? Um, yeah, I think so. Like it was just some, I, I really considered it was 500 until after the fact, but, um, uh, yeah, it was a really neat place to see. I'm glad that we saw it. Okay. Yeah. And for the many, uh, ex South Australians who listen to the territory story podcast, tell us your, uh, what was your favorite spot that you went to for the week down there? Oh, uh, the Costco. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, look, no, Adelaide was great. I think quite like that dollar ninety nine. Uh, what is it? Uh, hot dog, dog and Pepsi. Hot dog <laughs> yeah. And Pepsi. <laughs> yeah. Well, we got lunch for four bucks for two of us, so that was pretty good. Um, but yeah, no, it was great. We stayed in the CBD of Adelaide, which was uh, an interesting place. There's some real crazy people there, uh, <laughs> like running up and screaming in people's faces and pushing them and stuff. Like we've seen yeah. some stuff. Uh, but yeah, and then we were in King's Coat in uh, Kangaroo Island. That was an interesting little village, and mm. yeah, it was good to see. Excellent. Well, while you were away, uh, myself and Woody were hard at it, discussing yes. the stories that were making news, and there was plenty. But uh, there's plenty this week as well, so we should get stuck into it. Yeah, let's do it, Pete. It's been crazy again. So the first story uh, is one that sort of keeps lingering because we've been touching on this whole taxpayer-funded uh, um, uh, travel movements. And there's another one that's been happening with our, our speaker this time, Chris, Mr. Monaghan. Uh, yeah, look, yeah, this was really bizarre. And let me first say that, like, honestly, if I had a credit card, I would know, if I had a government credit card, I would know that that was wrong to charge <laughs> taxpayers. Like, even if my mate, the speaker, said it was okay, I would be like, yeah, no, nah, I don't think that... that taxpayers would like this, so I'm not going to do it, and I can afford mm-hmm. to pay for it myself. Um, and and I want to be clear about that. But, uh, yeah, look, the, the guy who allowed uh, Chancey Pake and Ran Young to charge taxpayers for fuel for their personal interstate holidays, uh, he ended up, I remember around that time when the scandal's first breaking here, he hops on a plane and he jets off to London. 
Mm. And he's there for a week or so. He's part of this Commonwealth Parliamentary Association organization that they're members of, which they just go on these junkets to these different countries and say they're learning about democracy and the Westminster system. And, um, you Speaking know. to the media and things like that. Yeah, so this guy we found out now, Monaghan, secretly charged taxpayers for a late-night flight on Territory Day to the Solomon Islands this time for this exclusive, you know, elite international parliamentary get-together. This one involved a ceremony with a giant pig and young men in loincloths. Uh, now, instead of being upfront about this, he, he, he or his staff uh, continued to post images to social media this week to make it appear that he was still in Darwin. Mm. And then this is the real troubling thing, I think, for all of this, too. But, um, you know, anyway, let me tell you how I found out about this. <laughs> Please do. So get off the flight from Adelaide. And it's Friday night. It's uh, 2 a.m. So I guess technically early Saturday morning. Uh, which is territory day. Um, so we're off at 2 a.m. My wife took my daughter into uh, the bathroom near the the, the uh, restaurant there. Uh, we just come right off the gate. She took her right in the toilet. I guarded the carry-on bags. I'm looking <laughs> around. I mean, that place is packed at 2 a.m., right? You know, you yep. talk about uh, these repairs that are being done on the tarmac out there and they're saying, oh, we have to do them at night. We have, why? It's like busier there at night. Yeah. I have not heard a good explanation for why they're so keen on doing it at night yeah. during the dry season. It's a very good point, actually, because once it gets to about midnight till like two, three in the morning, that's when all the, that's crazy. the budget flights come in and out. Yeah. So. so look, the place is completely packed. I'm guarding the bags. They're in the toilet. Uh, uh, people are walking by. I don't recognize anybody. And, you know, usually I do at airports. You remember some runners <laughs> I've had in the past with a few <laughs> ministers. Uh, so anyway, this guy walks by and he kind of looked familiar. And I thought, nah, I don't know him. But my eyes ended up blocking with another man behind him. And this guy, well, it was Mark Monaghan. Right. And so Monaghan looks at me and the color drains from his face. <laughs> And there is fear in his eyes, and he and he looks at me, and he realizes it's me, and he's oh shit! And he puts his head straight down, stares at his feet, and starts marching by. Now, meanwhile, like I said, it's two a.m. Just got off a flight with a child from uh, Adelaide. I'm still processing it. I look at the guy next to him, and it's the clerk, you know, the, the parliamentary uh, clerk, yes. Matthew Bates, so his accomplice in all of this stuff. Uh, and he was the guy at, at Estimates. I don't know if anyone saw that. He's, I don't know how old the, the gentleman is. Uh, he's got a, a very trendy, would we say, haircut. He looks like an emo kid from the 90s and or goth, a goth kid. And I right. picture him being like Monaghan's teen son. And he says, shut up. Shut up, Mark. Shut up, Dad. I don't want to go on this stupid flight at 2 a.m. Anyway, these guys, they're wearing their, their, their T-shirts and their shorts and their thongs and they're marching down. They don't have any bags, so they're going somewhere. Mm. So I said, uh, so I, I, I yelled out and I said, hey, guys, hey, guys. And they kept walking. I said, hey, guys, where are you going? <laughs> and uh, and I must have been so busy in there that they couldn't hear me. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah so they didn't want to respond. But I tell you, when I saw the look on Monaghan's face, I was like, oh, I better go and find out where he is. Not since I ran in to Adam Giles coming back from Melbourne one time mm. um, was I so suspicious about where a politician was going. Um, <laughs> and that, that thing with Giles, when I ran into him in Melbourne flying back to Darwin years ago, 
uh, I did look into where he was going. Now, remember, he was getting his rent paid for. This is all proven and true. He was getting his rent paid for by Halico's development group right. uh, staying at the, the 130 Esplanade building. Uh, it turned out that he was in Melbourne at that time for the AFL Grand Final uh, at Halico's corporate box that oh. they had for the Grand Final, uh, which he ended up declaring because he had run into me at the airport. So he actually <laughs> declared that as a gift, but he didn't declare the free rent he was getting and the free accommodation. So. Did say that in brackets in his declaration, <laughs> only because Chris caught me? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, it's like, uh, yeah, it's fun at airports sometimes for me. And <laughs> and when I saw Monaghan and I, you know, I was just like, no, nah, we, we better find out where he's going. And I was saying, oh, I think like there's only a couple of flights now. I don't think he's on that one going to Adelaide, going back to Adelaide. Then once he met, he was walking down further. So we think it was Sydney, Melbourne, maybe. Anyway, had to go somewhere and then catch a connecting flight. He might have gone even over. I don't know what was fine if the Singapore flight was then or if they even fly to Singapore here anymore. I don't know. Mm, yeah. Anyway, he ends up so so I don't know though. I don't. And I'm saying, well, we're gonna I'm gonna ask around. I'm gonna try and find out where he may have been going because the look on his face, I'm telling you, there was something wrong about this. So I um I did. I made some inquiries and well, come to find out, I think it was on the Tuesday, uh, this Commonwealth Parliamentary Association that was hosting this event in Solomon Islands, they were posting video and photos. And here Monaghan and Bates are um, with this giant pig in some (laughs) sort of weird ceremony. And and you got to see the video on this. Is the pig alive or is it over hot coals? No, no, it's that actual pig that's in the graphic on the site that, that's, right. that's tethered to this post. Uh, it's just a massive pig. And anyway, so, but you got to see the video because it's, he's getting tremendous kicks out of this Monaghan, this pig. And he's like, he's like looking up, he said, check this out, you know, and he's looking like, and he's like smiling and nodding and he's, he's loving whatever they're doing with this pig. And then you see that he's wearing his thongs. I mean, this isn't a business thing. This is him being a jackass and flying over at taxpayers expense. And we paid for this. I don't know how much we paid and we'll probably never find out. Well, we will now. I'll probably make it my my job to find out, my mission to find out. Uh, so, but here's, yeah, what else have Oh, and then they had the, uh, the young men in the loincloths uh, dancing, right? And then I think they did some sort of performance. And then Monaghan saw them shaking hands and he like ran up and got in line. You can see on the video, wanted to shake their hands. Wow. Um, yeah, so this is what we paid for and we paid for all of this now i don't know what the theme was i think last time when he went to london it was disaster management that they were teaching all the commonwealth countries about uh and he would know a thing or two about that having been in this disastrous government for as long (laughs) as he has um which has actually only been he only got elected what in 2020 I mean, this guy, anyway, you know, you just get the sense that like, and you know, I think somebody made that comment, but I was talking to other people too. Um, you just get the sense that this is kind of what the CLP did on their way out. Mm. Uh, when they knew a year out from the, the, that 2016 election that they were going to be finished, they started making sure that they packed on all of this travel uh, and especially the CPA stuff. And, and, and you know, the thing that I, I, I yeah, which, which is weird, I think I mentioned it to you. How does Monaghan even explain this to his family? The guy's got a family. Like, how does he say, oh, no, I, I, I'm sorry, dear. I really need to get to the Solomon mm-hmm. Islands. Democracy is at stake here. And if I don't go, uh, well, it won't be good. Like, who's buying this shit? <laughs> we have to check their uh, pig tethering skills just to make sure they're <laughs> the international standard, Commonwealth standard. 
it's just crazy to go less than six weeks ago to the UK. And then, and that's where he's from. So he got a free trip back home too, um, as did D-Ran and Chansey. But anyway, look, we went to him and I'll make it clear that we went to him. And then I, and I think I put in the email to Monahan and said, Hey, I, you know, I know you saw me at the airport. Uh, I'm guessing that it was, it got so loud that you couldn't hear me when I was asking your questions. Um, and I said, so where were you going? Why were you doing this? You know, all the, all these standard questions. It, the thing that bothers me, like I said, is that he pretended that he wasn't going. Yeah. And that's why these guys look so guilty. And then I'm there and he sees me and he, and he thinks, oh God, what am I going to, like, I've got these Facebook posts time to come out to make it look like I'm still in Darwin. And and so this is what he does. So he he flew out of the junk. We know that early Saturday morning. Um, but he posts something on Tuesday celebrating the opening of the new Guzman and Gomez burrito shop in his Stewart Park electorate. And he wrote, come down and meet the friendly staff and snag the Ripper deals. Come, <laughs> come down and meet the friendly as if he's there. He was 3,200 kilometers away. Yeah. Dealing with um, much bigger burritos. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He also posted uh, photos of himself from an undated Parliament House ceremony involving U.S. servicemen, in which he wrote that he was wishing, quote, wishing all of our American friends happy Fourth of July. It looked like they, they had done a ceremony at Parliament House that day for Fourth yeah. of July, and and he had American flags, and it looked like it was happening then. But it was an undated photo; it did not happen then because right. you know he was in Solomon Islands. Uh, this is the thing that I, I just, I think people will have an issue with that. It appears that they know that it's wrong, mm. you know, and then, then they cover it up. Uh, yeah. So not cover up, Chris, that's what you've taught me. That's <laughs> it. And I, yeah. And I, I really don't get it now. We know that he, he made that entitlement for those fuel cars to be used for interstate personal travel. Mm. Um, the irony of this one is that these, this is actually allowed under the yeah. proper remuneration determination. No. Um, and and I, I, I don't know why, but look, that, that's what they did. They let them attend a CPA event around the world with the speaker's permission. So he gave himself permission yeah. to go to yeah. this thing. Uh, it's no, a bit, but It's a bit like um, doing a, a report into your, into your own actions, isn't it? You know, like if you... <laughs> Wait, didn't they try that before? Well, and we're going to get into that with the ICAC law reform later. But uh, yeah, look, this stuff, when they go on these CPA things, and I did the, the stories about this when I was at the NT News and ABC, um, uh, they get first class. They, 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 there's no, you know, no expense spared for these things. Um, mm. Whatever accommodation they want, they fly, and, and we don't know about it. And yeah. they never made those CPA things proper. And, you know, that, that CPA stuff got really dodgy with uh, Kezia Purick and uh, Michael Tatum, the previous speaker and clerk. Um, and they were doing some stuff. I've written about it for years. And it's not, it, it was not on for taxpayers. We were getting ripped off on all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, and we know that D-Ran Young also charged taxpayers for an undisclosed CPA trip to Edmonton, Alberta, Canada last month just up the road from where I lived last before we moved over to Darwin. Would have liked him to go in January and feel some cold air. That would have been good for him. He wouldn't have been able to, to tolerate it. Um, yeah, look, Monaghan, one of the questions that we asked Monaghan, we said, well, what benefit are Territorians getting out of this trip to the Solomon Islands or the last trip to his home country of the UK? Uh, the reason we asked that, Pete, is, and I don't know if you remember this, but before this corrupt government got in, 
uh, who promised to restore integrity. Politicians were obligated to produce reports for taxpayer-funded trips, mm. um, and they had to say in the report how much it cost, uh, uh, what territorians got out of it, what they accomplished. I remember a very famous one that Matt Conlon did, and he said that he had taken a poll in a pub of uh, anybody who had heard of the Northern Territory while he was in Los Angeles. And he considered that that he was doing market research. Um, but, you know, he was forced to report that, and he was rightly ridiculed by the community when I reported yeah. that this is what this clown did. He also, his whole purpose of that trip was to study, <laughs> this is true, this is what he wrote, to study uh, Americans' TV viewing habits and how they relate to their international travel destinations yeah. yeah so he was trying to get to the bottom of that so he went into a pub on his on his last night in la and said hey beer for everybody who started the northern territory whether you heard of us or not you'll get a beer and it was something like that eight people you know <laughs> anyway, it was, and as um, you say he should have been ridiculed for it yeah and and but you know those that was there to force them to reveal what their travel was. Now, what Gunner did when he came in, and, and, and this was in late 2017, early 2018 when he did this, so a year after coming in. Um, now, he, he talked about restoring integrity to government in that famous document we know. He talks about travel in there and about how he's going to be up front and about how the real costs are going to come out. But what he does a year in is mm. he rolls the travel allowance. He rolls this money that they could get for study trips that they would not have to explain to Parliament. He then rolls it into the travel allowance for all MLAs. So for their electorate, their electorate allowance, sorry, I should, mm. that's more specific, their electorate allowance. So they take their travel allowance, put it in the electorate allowance. Nobody sees it anymore. That requirement to publicly report has gone. So any of these MLAs who are elected now can take whatever trips they want at taxpayer expense and, and never report it. We will never know about it because we don't know how they spend that electorate allowance. Yeah, yeah. It's between them and the tax man, essentially. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about doing something into that. I think, I think I have a way of actually attempting to do something here, so I will. Because yeah. I, I think that that's a way the government really got away from integrity. They took public money. Gave it to politicians to do whatever you want with it. Uh, you don't have to explain to anybody anymore. And now, you know, we've got this stuff where, you know, these guys are flying out at all hours of the night, whatever suits to go to places that, there, that there's no reason whatsoever why we should pay for this, especially mm -hmm. after he's just come back from London. Uh, for another CPA event, why on earth would we pay for him to go to Solomon Islands? Why would he want to go? I, these people, but except this, that they know, and he would know, especially he's in a swing seat here. See you later, buddy. See you later. Uh, snow trough gone. And that's, you know, when I saw that photo of the pig, and that's why we put in the headline, Snow's in the trough, Monaghan, and another taxpayer-funded overseas junket. I thought that was a joke. Somebody sent that to me, and I said, is this... <laughs> Like, how could they have a giant pig out there? Is he showing them how it's done with the snow <laughs> in the drop? And Monahan's like, well, that's good for him. He's drawing diagrams. And I like what he's done here. I like how his snow fits right in there. Well, look, buddy, you know, you never know what's going to happen next year. His little trough might be taken away from him. So he's going to get as many trips in as he can. Um, and we're going to do more. We'll find out. We're, he's now piqued our interest enough that we're going to go dig around a little bit more and find out what else he's charging us for. Yeah, look, I think the the sort of main outcome of all that, as you said, is this whole situation where that that actual trip 
was allowed under the letter of the law, so there's no problems with that. So there's no need to sneak around if that's what, in fact, was happening. Yeah, just be upfront and tell people, except that, again, he, he shows that he has an understanding of right and wrong. Right. And, and, you know, whether or not it's legal is another thing to whether it's right or wrong. Now, is this, is this something he could justify to taxpayers going over there? Clearly, he can't or else he would have made it public. Mm. Right? He, he knows that. And he knew that with the fuel card warts that he let Chansey and the Rand Young take part in. He knew that. And that's why he didn't make that public, that, that ruling. Mm. That determination, right? He didn't tell other MLAs about it as they typically do. They mm. just put it on this server, this intranet server. And at estimates, they were saying, well, why didn't we hear about this? And he, well, you know, and then they said, well, an email, if it was an email, it would just be a point in time. But we thought if we put it on the intranet, it would be there forever and you could find it eventually. Uh, seriously. And it was like, well, what about this, guys? What about an email to notify people that it was on the <laughs> server, on the internet server? Uh, like, that's sneaky stuff. It shows that he has intent here. He knows what he's doing is inappropriate, but he's doing it anyway. You know, tell people, defend yourself. Get up and explain to them why you need to go to the Solomon Islands now, why six mm. weeks ago you had to go to the UK. Uh, why still we have no explanation except that he thinks that entitlement exists that doesn't for the fuel card thing. I'd still like a straight answer out of him for that. But uh, like I said, you know, these are desperate men now and uh, they're going to continue to um, get what they can out of the system before it's too late. Chris, I know you have no understanding of cricket and no interest in it, but uh, what you're describing to me right now is the political equivalent of the spirit of the game <laughs> versus rules yeah Which that's right oh, i know all about like... that stuff yeah 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 <laughs> yeah well look i mean but yeah and, and you've got to be able to explain to yourself or you know feel good with yourself about your actions and what you're doing like i told you i, I couldn't do that i couldn't charge taxpayers even if i had a government fuel card because it's just not right and you know it doesn't pass the pub test stuff you know you can't explain it in good conscience and uh you know, yeah, and that's really what it comes down to, and you can't do that. So, makes sense. And if you if you didn't, in all conscience, feel like you could charge it to MMC, then you definitely couldn't <laughs> charge it to tax. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I do have the MT and the Bennett credit card, but yeah, no, of course not. Like that's that's yeah. staying in that top drawer at work, I'm sure. <laughs> Locked away for FOIs. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Anyway, look, let's move on to the next story because, again, this is one we've talked about before. Well, the beginnings of this we talked about, but some pretty serious turn of events this week when uh, it was discovered that the NT Police Director of Communications had been sacked amidst accusations of political interference. Yeah, look, Pete, this this one, like I said, this, this is just so troubling. And to think that, that this is going on here, um, where you've got them now where they're uh, taking us for everything they can in terms of taxpayer funds for their own personal enjoyment. And then they're turning around and they're, well, we already know they banned the media. You know, when they banned the free press, when they banned us from attending press conferences, I said at the time, this is slippery slope. I think even mm -hmm. Peter Gresta said something along those lines. You know, what happens next? What, what's next if we don't stand up and fight for this? And yet no media organization in town stood with us on that. You know, Jane Barden at ABC did some stuff and she worked with uh, the MEAA, um, but but no media organization actually came out and said, now what the government's doing is wrong here. And this is the point that, that this is the point that we get to is where we now know and we can see this, that the government is suppressing information that the public has a right to know about that in some instances may uh 
go directly to their safety, the safety of territorians in their own communities. Because, you know, and this goes back to what happened two weeks ago when we first reported that uh, the, the government had brought in a, a marketing manager uh, from the Department of Chief Minister and Cabinet to basically act as the gatekeeper for crime information. I think we, we came up with a new title for her today. I think it's um, crime manager, government crime manager. Okay. Something along those lines, right? Because we've got to yeah. tell her what she actually does, and she manages the messaging around the crime, and and she she manages the the facts getting out to people. Now, there's been less, and this is just anecdotal, but there's been less releases from police this week about violent crimes as well. Um, does that mean that they're down? No, uh, I don't think so. The ones that they do release, they were only doing it now after they arrest a perpetrator. And they'll say, oh, yeah, by the way, four days ago, this horrific crime happened. But we didn't tell anybody, but we've captured the people now four days later. Um, well, that's not good enough. We got to know what's happening in our community. And the, the government, instead of addressing the crime crisis, which they know, like you, who was saying that, that, that they saw that you know, in the faces of these politicians earlier in the year, and then they even had estimates that it was wearing on them, that they knew that they had no solution for this crime problem. Um, uh, it was, it was, it was something that they, it was so important for them to manage, of course, and to keep territory safe. It's just a basic fundamental of what a government has to do. And they had no plan and you could see it in their faces. Uh, so they came up with a plan, but Pete, the problem here is the plan wasn't, Here's a plan to address the crime crisis. The plan was, well, what if we just cover it up? Yeah. What if we just don't report it anymore to people? <laughs> it all goes away. Like, this is crazy. This is crazy because it goes to the safety of people in the community now on the streets of Darwin, Palmerston, Alice Springs, Tennant Creek, Catherine, everywhere around. Uh, we don't know what's going on unless uh, government appointed a uh, uh, marketing manager decides that she has a, an angle on it. Now, one of these uh, angles or spin cycles, uh, whatever you want to call it, would have been this whole nonsense about the four-year, I think Woody might have talked about it last week, that Alice Springs was at a four-year uh, low for crime. Yes. Look, this, this, that that was very clear, and, and Woody had a story on Monday about that some more. And I think after reading Woody's story, you just come away thinking, oh, yeah, okay, that's the first thing where this government person has come up with this idea. Well, what if we just talk about incidents, not crimes? And we say yeah. that incidents are down. And then Small Page, who you remember, he's always in for comedic relief. He came in and screwed it up and said, <laughs> crime. The crime rate is down. He was supposed to say the number of incidents or something is down. Yep. But the crimes weren't down. And, and the so crime they had was to, miscommunicating the crime. Yeah, and, and, and so they had to admit that they were wrong. And mm -hmm. then we get back into issues with the other media. Now, the other media have not reported anything about this Sita Basher, the, the marketing guru here who's running Territory Boundless Possible or some nonsense. Um, they've not reported on this. That the and they're the victims of it, too. Like, they're the ones getting fed this nonsense, but they're not questioning it. They didn't question that four-year figure that mm -hmm. this was Alice Spring. They just reported it blindly. It's sad, man. It is really sad. But now we know yeah. that we've got a government. We've got a complicit media 
And I'm saying that, and I've got some friends in media here, but they're being complicit in this whole thing. They're not reporting what's happening, and then they're going along with whatever they're given by the government and reporting it as if it's true, and it mm-hmm. just isn't. And, you know, that's why I think the action man was so important and Alice Springs was that this guy wasn't yeah. believing what the cops said. He was the talking to real people and putting real stuff out so yeah. that people in the community knew what was going on and could protect themselves. And that is so crucial. This government has just dropped the ball on that. Um, and now they've done this. They they bring in this marketing manager to, to, to manage the problem instead of actually addressing and finding a solution to the root cause of the crime. So, of course, it goes without saying that on Monday, um, the director of communications for anti-police was sacked. Yeah. Just outright sacked. Uh, we don't know the, um, the reasons for that. I mean, I think you know the reasons when you, know, when you see what had happened. It's political interference. This is now politicians coming in and saying, we don't like how the police are telling people about crime, so we're going to cover this up now. You're not going to find out about it. And let's sack the director of communications just so the rest of them know, you know, that we're serious. You do what the government tells you. Now, I don't know if she seemed to go along with it, too. Um, uh, we're talking about Margaret McKee, and though she was the director of communications, she was sacked. Um Without explanation, we were told uh, it, it did come at that time where it looked like this was done. Now, the other part here that was going on in the media unit, Pete, was that they were being bugged. Wow. This is huge, really, isn't it? It's, it is. It's just crazy. It's a political interference, like, all over it here uh, to the point that, you know, that the people may not be safe in the community. I mean, in, in, you know, on the streets of Durham. They, so they bugged their own media unit the police, maybe it was the government, somebody bugged them. Um, and this followed secret video surveillance of the Alice Springs police media office last year, which I think we talked about. Yeah. There was one person um, the charge laid against the media officer for disclosing certain information, um, which of course you want to be charged for disclosing information when you're in the police media unit. Uh, media unit staff were also questioned up here in Darwin by detectives after the NT Independent, after we ran that story about the marketing manager from Department of Chief Minister being installed to censor the crime reporting. When that story came out, that sent shockwaves. There were emergency meetings being held. Yeah. Uh, plan, other plans to take it even further were scrapped. We understand there was... Um, they were very concerned because this because this just goes this is just so far beyond what they should be doing. Um, it, it's, yeah, just chilling that, that that this could happen here. But of course, what do you expect? We let them get away with banning the free press. We let them ban us. I mean, we put up fights. We had international people supporting us. We did everything we could. Yep. And yet nobody backed us to that point where the other media, and I said this at the media awards last year, you know, where, where, where are you guys? Like, why aren't you backing us? Now we've just won two years in a row, best news coverage. Mm. Why aren't you guys backing us and telling the government we're not going to go to a press conference until the independent are allowed? Yep. That's all they have to do for one day and we'd be yeah. allowed in. Yeah. So they haven't done it, and there's they're buying all of this garbage. They're complicit in this all. Like, who, like, where do you get the truth anymore? Where do you get the facts of what's happening? Yeah, look, it, it's getting really frightening. Um, 
luckily we've got pretty good sources, as you can see, Pete, so we can we'll do our part. I think there's yeah. some other people too. I mean, we can't sit around reporting crime all day. There's other crimes going on, you know, corruption, et cetera, that, that are in the public interest and the people need to know about. But um, yeah, I, I just, I find this really disturbing. And then to bug their own people and put them under uh, interrogation by detectives to try and find who gave information in a group that is their job to give the public information. <laughs> like, something's really wrong here. This, this is really, really bad. Yeah, it is. And I completely agree with you in that if the other media organizations uh, don't like you or they feel intimidated by your reporting or whatever the situation might be, the, the statement that I would make is put yourself in the same position. Yeah, well, if you want your organi- yeah, like your fraternity to back you, absolutely you would. Yeah, and then and, and we said that. I said, you know, we would bag anybody if that if it was different, if it was reversed. Mm. Um, we'd be the first ones to do it. But look, hey, that's the difference between when you operate with integrity and when you don't. So, mm. you know, we always want to be the ones operating with integrity. When things aren't right, we'll call it out. Um, yeah, and that this week, this is not right. They've now sacked the director of communications from police. They've uh, taken over the government, the political interference, just taken over the police unit. Yep. We don't know what crimes are going to be reported. You know, we won one of our crime core, best crime core reporting for a series of stories we did on the suppression of sexual assaults mm. and getting out to the public. Um, we thought that they had learned their lesson after that. And the other media at that time did jump on board with us and followed our stories. Yep. And they don't do that anymore either, which is really troubling because nobody's reported any of this stuff of what's mm. really going on inside there. Plus, you you got to look at this, Pete. And how does, how does Michael Murphy get to become the police commissioner now? Yeah. After this stuff, like he's allowed the government to come in and interfere politically with his police force. Well, they'll be in an acting role that he's in. But he's allowed this to happen. This is not the sign of a good leader. This is the, like, you know, he should be resigning. He should be coming out and saying something or doing something about this. Um, instead, he's just allowing this to, to, to go on. And, and, you know, and it's his own, his own officers are going to be caught up in all of this. Uh, this is not good. And I've not seen any signs of Murphy putting his own mark on anything here. And I think that, you know, considering he's in the acting role, I know he's, he feels like he's auditioning. And this is yeah. the other thing that's really troubling too, because they got to fill this. Now I've been told that, that, that it's people are saying it's going to be November before we get a full-time commissioner wow. because of how Chalker's contract. I don't know if that's true exactly, but if it is, that's really bad because we got a guy in there right now, Murphy, who's auditioning for the role yeah. In front of the people who hire him, who are the politicians. Well, I mean, it'll be a quote-unquote independent panel, but it's mm-hmm. the poly. He's he's keeping files and warden and anybody else happy, um, and allowing them to interfere with the information that's getting out to the public because he wants the job. And look, he's gone. I don't think he has the authority, the moral authority, to hold the role after this. Mm. Chris, you mentioned that the NT Police Association weren't happy about this and that they were going to be sitting down to talk with the government. Do we have any update on whether that's happened or what the outcome was? Uh, no, I'm not sure. Actually, Woody was going back to them here this week about that. We'll probably have more on that tomorrow. So okay. uh, I think I can check that out, uh, readers. Um, 
yeah, it, it, yeah. Nathan Finn had said that he had serious concerns about that interference uh, when they brought in the, the marketing manager, mm. and that he was going to say something. I don't know that he has. Uh, I don't know that yeah, what he would say about um, the media, the comms director being yep. sacked too. So we'll we'll find out. Okay. All right. No worries. Look, we'll touch on it more as as things unfold. Let's move on to the next story because this is also something that we've been talking about on an ongoing basis in relation to the NT-ICAC and the Act in general uh, and some of the reforms being called into question. I know you've spoken to an expert this week and his response to you was quite staggering. So let's have a chat about that. Uh, yeah, Pete. Uh, look, yeah, we knew that <laughs> these reforms that they were bringing forward you know, we're brought, we're brought about by the government. This is the former chief minister brings in Greg Shanahan, a former chief executive, and a guy he knows well, to run this review of the ICAC Act, the actual legislation. He wants changes. And so they come up with the, these ideas. They finally put it out. takes a year and a half or two years or something before they put out uh, what they're recommending, the reforms. Now, we sent that straight away to some experts interstate. I've spoken to some lawyers about this. I've talked to experts interstate. And uh, yeah, we heard back from uh, A.J. Brown this week. Now, A.J. Brown is a leading national corruption and integrity expert with Griffith University. He's also a board member of Transparency International. Australia has also been involved. Uh, you probably read stuff by him about the uh, National ICAC and how that's going to be put together. Um, now, he's come back and he said, quite bluntly, this is quite weird by national standards. <laughs> that uh, that, that these reforms are quite weird by national standards. Like we said, you know, that that's the NP for you right there. Summed yeah. up quite weird by national standards. <laughs> um, anyway, he said this, that, that uh, you know, that this whole... Uh, proposed changes that the centers around this section 50 that they want to insert here. And this would uh, prevent the anti-corruption commissioner from naming politicians or public servants found to have engaged in certain misconduct in certain circumstances, which of course, AJ Brown said that th this is completely inappropriate for an independent investigative body. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. He said uh, that it was also counterproductive. Uh, he says everything after clause 58.2 is quite weird by national standards and potentially very inappropriate and counterproductive to having an effective independent investigative agency. Um, he said, well, there are always ways to strengthen procedural safeguards to ensure that individuals are only named or mentioned as and when appropriate. My own view would be that the heavy restrictions as proposed in that section are neither useful nor credible way to do that. Wow. So, you know, this goes back to how this whole review was set up, this whole Shanahan review, right? We, there were no terms of reference uh, provided to the public. No idea. Yeah. They didn't go through a public hiring process to appoint Shanahan. Gunner just seemed to unilaterally do it. Um, and the submissions, now this is the big thing, I think, the submissions that are made to this review uh, will never be made public. They're kept secret. It's all done behind closed doors. So we don't know, for instance, who recommended that the politicians and public servants shouldn't be named. <laughs> they engage in misconduct. I can think of a few people, and they're all in Parliament House yeah. or across the street <laughs> in the public service. Um, 
<laughs> probably senior people, but we will not know who put pressure on him. Could they exert a pressure on Shanahan? We don't know because we didn't know what the terms of reference are. We don't know what the submissions are. We now know that this is what he wants to change, which is being completely rubbished by national experts yeah. who are saying that this is serious and this is a problem. Now, other people that we spoke to, and, and we'll probably, we're going to have more on this because this is really bad, uh, had also raised concerns that setting the threshold for the ICAC to make a self-determination if a particular case was serious enough to warrant naming a politician or public servant uh, would most likely result in the individuals not being named due to fears of potential lawsuits. And we mm. saw, I think, everybody who's been found to have engaged in corrupt conduct by the previous uh, Commissioner Fleming has sued. Yeah. And then some have, I think, mildly been successful. Others have failed. And uh, I think we still have a principal who was suing because she thought that the words he used were too, were hurt her feelings too much or something. Like, you know, it, it's ridiculous. But this is what like, a guy like Richards is afraid of, right? He's so risk averse that he's not going to, um, he's not going to uh, even try. And, and then basically he said this, right? So we did find a letter that Richards wrote to Frank Daly. Now, Frank Daly's the new Jody Ryan, the head public servant. Yeah. Um, and it would be cabinet secretary as well, as well as chief executive department or chief minister and cabinet. Mm. Uh, Rich has outlined his concerns with the proposed reforms to the act in this letter, including his ability to publish a public report. He said, to the extent that any amendments constrain my ability to publish compelled evidence and where I've largely relied upon that compelled evidence to make findings, it is unlikely that I will publish an investigation report. Mm, wow. um, he said, in my view, an investigation report needs to explain how I've come to my findings, where those findings rely heavily upon compelled evidence. The report ought to include that evidence. If I cannot publish that evidence, I would be unlikely to publish the report. Well, I may still publish a public statement about a matter. Now, that's like a watered-down version of a report. Uh, I anticipate adopting the same course as that previously taken. And we know you looked at that one that he pretended that he just found about the public servant who lied about her qualifications. And he said, well, I can't name her. And, well, okay, fine, man, but yeah. we'll do it. We'll name her. <laughs> and we named her. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is what he's saying. And this is why I guess he's trying to put this on the fact that he's done nothing in two years in the role. Um now, he said also that uh, under this newly created Section 50A, that, quote, a report about a current or former minister or member of the legisl Legislative Assembly uh, could not include reference to compelled evidence, but a report about other public officers could. It should be considered whether that is the desired outcome, he wrote. Um, yeah, I would say it is. <laughs> the desired outcome is to protect first politicians and secondly, senior executive public servants. Mm. Um, yeah, that would be the desired outcome of the Shanahan report. And we're going to have more on that, like I said. But, you know, yeah, and then we just had some more stuff in here about what happened at estimates and that, you know, Rich is unable to fill key roles uh, for reasons he doesn't know and can't explain. Uh, but it has impacted his ability to investigate corruption. Um, there was something here where he said that, like, I, I'm just, I'm, oh, um, he said that his office's lack of output and inability to, quote, look at more matters was the result of budget cuts. The whole thing that, the, that was troubling about that, too, was just him saying, I can't, I can't look at everything that I want to look at. And nobody really had an issue with that. Nobody was like, <laughs> wait a second, the ICAC saying he can't do his job here. Yeah. And one, it's because 
technically the man who's the commissioner clearly has issues on his own that, that make him unsuitable for the role. But secondly, that even if you put that aside, the way this whole thing is set up is for the ICAC not to do his job properly and not to investigate everything that comes to him, or at least even the most important stuff that comes to yeah. him. Yeah. So we're really screwed. And, and Pete, like I, I tell people when I'm talking to them to sources and stuff, I say, look, I'm just, I'm operating as if the ICAC doesn't exist anymore. Right. And and that's really the only way we can do this. This guy, yeah, yeah. he's not doing his job. And there's, there's so many reasons for that, but it's just not going to function. It's not right. And if they try and pass these or they do get these reforms and now he's complained about them, now we have a leading national expert. If they don't change these before they table it in parliament, I think we know what's going on. And just to remind you again, Pete, as I like to do, before the, this original legislation came in, the politicians got together, labor guys, and tried to make themselves exempt yeah. in the first case until that was exposed. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's great that they brought the ICAC in, but based on everything that you've described and everything we've seen and heard along the way, uh, perception is the word we constantly use when it comes to this sort of stuff. And this is a classic example. If we don't even know who made the submissions about what changes should or shouldn't be affected, then you know, openness and transparency, those things that uh, we continually talk about, uh, are just, they're not a factor, are they? Because they're, no. they're simply non-existent. Yeah, it was something good to get elected on, but not to actually fulfill or to make yeah. real the, the, the notion of that. And, uh, and that's what these idiots have done. And, and it's just, disgraceful on so many levels and yeah anyway look enjoy the trips guys i don't know because <laughs> i mean this this is the kind of i mean you got this stuff where they're, they're working behind the scenes to change legislation to protect themselves they're going on these taxpayer funded uh, junkets all over the place and then they're suppressing the public's right to information that will keep mm. them safe in their homes yeah. What the actual hell is going on here? And when is somebody going to do something about this? Like, this is yeah. just, those are just a couple of stories we've talked about on a Thursday night here yeah. in July. Um, and that's, yeah. that's just like a small part of the, the whole place imploding around us. Yeah, it is. At some point, something has to happen. I've say, I keep saying that. And, and, you know, I'm still optimistic. Although we've got so many challenges and so many problems, I'm still optimistic that something is going to happen that's going to alter the trajectory that we're on because that trajectory we're on is just total doom at mm. this point. Like, and you know, we're, we'll get into that about the power. I mean, yeah. the power is going to go out here because this <laughs> government crimes yeah. out of control. We're going to be living in caves here, hunting rats with sticks. <laughs> because of yeah. this labor government like i cannot yeah. believe this but this is where we're headed right now because these guys are too busy looking after themselves yeah look it's troubling on so many fronts it's something we've talked about endlessly and it, it's it comes down to what's people's uh, tolerance levels because at the end of the day nothing will change unless change is forced and, you know, we had these rallies some time ago after um, the young fellow was stabbed at the BWS there in Jingley, and they mm -hmm. were great because it at least got people's attention. But there needs to be a lot more. And, and it, you know, again, it's about perception. There may be nothing dodgy going on. There may be nothing untoward oh, no. going on. <laughs> 
<laughs> but we have no way of knowing with the way it currently stands. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in relation to the ICAC stuff, but then you've got, yeah, I mean, look, this other stuff, there's dodgy stuff going on, but that's it. But, but nobody's holding them accountable. I mean, we are to this extent that you and I can have this conversation that we report this stuff in the anti-independent yep. for the public to know, but nobody's, nobody's investigating them. And if they are, they're not making that publicly clear. They're not cleaning the place up. The place needs to be cleaned up. This conduct, yeah. this behavior yeah. needs to be called out and, and stopped in its tracks. And that's not happened yet. But I, like I say, I'm just, I'm optimistic that, that, that something is going to happen here um, mm. because it needs to, we're, we're doomed. We're, we're heading to a place we don't want to see. It is how it feels. Um, without, uh, Moving on without a solution, we're going to need to move on and uh, get to the next story. Uh, this is an interesting one too because this is a little place we've talked about in many forms over the previous few years and uh, it seems that the defence has now signed a lease for the Howard Springs Accommodation Facility, which uh, has worn many hats in its short amount <laughs> of time. And, and names. It was called something else. It had, uh, I just, I, I can't remember the name of it, but after when it went to the government, they then gave it a, an indigenous name for the complex, wow. but they like just gave that up when it became the gold standard as the ABC keeps reporting. It's the gold standard for COVID. Um, and then wow. it became the center for whatever, for <laughs> COVID <laughs> springs, whatever. Um, it became the gold standard for smashing up. For, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and we still don't know what the damage bill on that is. But anyway, they've turned around the anti-government and now leased it yeah. to the defense. Um, and, and part of the deal is the defense have to fix it up. Yeah, the Department of Defense does have to. Now, well, they're apparently saying that they will get this done, but they're coming in to take it, but the anti-government's going to pay for it. Now, this is the they've estimated cost, estimated. These guys are talking about estimated costs of 50 million per year for the next five years. Now that's for uh, operation and maintenance of the facility, including lease payments to the anti-government, catering, hospitality, hospitality, uh, cleaning services, utilities, transport, security, and waste disposal. Both governments said that, adding that again, that the costs are quote unquote estimated. And you think that they would know. They've run this thing as a COVID thing for that. You know what the cost is. Here's the thing. It did not say uh, what the actual specific lease payments would be to the NT government. Right. Um, but then I saw the ABC did uh, have somebody on the record saying that the NT government will be receiving $18 million annually from the lease report. So what's a couple million? Out of yeah. that one thing to fix up these, what was it, 10,000 broken windows? I, I yeah, yeah. 700 and something, right? It was crazy. Um, and then, you know, what estimates they had said it was somewhere around 300,000, yeah. which we just know is not true. There's no point reporting that when it's not true. It's going to be well over a million. But then you have uh, the COP came out this week and said, oh, yeah, it's good that the military is taking it over. But, you know, they still have to. You know, the government taxpayers still have to pay a million, 1.5 million for all the damage there when it was used for this flood evacuees. But like 1.1 million of their figure was security costs. Yeah. For six right. months or something. Like I, chairs out the front. Well, no, no, that was the one that we did a long time ago. <laughs> but yeah, COP just came up with this figure of when, when was that in March, February, March, where the flood evacuees went. 
to now, I guess, and they think 1.1 million in security costs and yeah. um, 400 for uh, the broken the repairs and stuff. Like, I, it's going to be way more than that for the repairs. Mm. Um, anyway, we we don't know yet, but the military has come in. Department of Defense uh, have taken it over for the next five years, and that will house uh, military personnel. Um, yeah, it takes effect from this month where 1,300 military personnel from Australia and other nations will be housed at the former COVID-19 facility as they participate in exercise talisman saber this month. Um, what did they say? Government statement said the facility uh, will relieve pressure on limited on-base defense accommodation in Darwin and ensure defense requirements do not place excessive demand on local ho- hotel accommodation during major exercises scheduled during the peak season. The government said, now, here's the thing. Well, you remember, we were talking about this. <laughs> Nobody's coming. The hotel vacancy yeah. rates are at the lowest they've been in, in years, like a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't even understand that. Why are you even going on about that? I guess maybe someday in the next five years it might be good. Um yeah, and Files said, uh, of course, the repurposing of the farmer workers camp at Howard Springs would support, quote, the availability of short-term business and tourism accommodation options for use in the greater Darwin area, particularly during the peak season, although we know that it's down by 25 to 30 percent. No, she didn't say which peak season, though, Chris. Just a no, peak season no. in the future. Absolutely, yeah, someday. Um, yeah, you know... <clears throat> We get back into the history of this place on just how it was uh, gifted to the NT government officially in April 2019. But they had known from 2013 that they were going to get this facility from Impact. Mm, yep. And they did nothing. Like to prepare and to figure out what they were going to actually use it for, they did nothing. They had no idea. It was sitting there empty. Like I said, it's costing $2.6 million or something to just, yeah, for two security guards to sit there and monitor it and mow the lawn. Um, for yeah, for a year it was crazy, and then all of a sudden the COVID happened, and it actually served a, a great purpose for that. And then that was really handy that we had that by by no fault of the government. <laughs> you know, this was, yeah, that's right. They were doing everything they could to screw this thing up. So now they've they've given it to defense. They've leased it to defense. Um, so it is good that it's being used finally um, for something constructive, I guess. But uh, good, yeah. Um, hey, what happens to the uh, the bloke whose job we read out? on Job of the Week a few weeks ago, the full-time manager. What's going to happen to him? Yeah, well, I'm sure he'll be still there. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe they'll bring him in to run the police station. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> he, could maybe run, he could maybe run one of those uh, closed police stations around uh, <laughs> yeah. Cliff for these areas. They need managers, seeing as there's no staff in there. Yeah, that you know that that is a really good point about that position. Um because that was a hundred gorillas a year or more. So yeah, I'm sure it was all through a contract that they'll have to pay out now. Uh, and whoever got that job will just it's probably Ryan Neve or something got that job and he'll just be paid out. Well, here's a million for the uh <laughs> this place, man. This place just annoys me uh, sometimes, but you're absolutely right about that. Mm. All right, let's move to the next story. And uh, you mentioned this in brief a short time ago, but this is really worrying. The Utilities Commission predicts that top-end blackouts will occur if the government doesn't act. What's going on here? Well, look, it's right. Blackouts are going to happen. 
within the next three years here um, because the government hasn't acted. Right now, this is the yeah. Utilities Commission. This is their NT Electricity Outlook report. It was released late last week. Provides a 10-year outlook for electricity generation and use for the Darwin-Catherine line, uh, Alice Springs, and Tennant Creek power systems. Uh, and what they found is what they found two years ago, which is that the government has not taken the proper actions to prepare for, I, I guess, the biggest part of this would be uh, the anticipated nearly 50% reduction in peak electricity generation capacity um, from the Channel Island power station when that goes offline. Um, now, the report said that renewable generation increased the complexity of managing the system because, you know, you talk about that, right? And we, I think that had come up about um, uh, they've got all these solar yeah. projects around that they're unable to hook into the grid. Yeah. And the question is, well, what the hell's going on? Now, the report said renewable generation increased the complexity of managing the system, and the government needed to spend a significant amount of money on new generation and storage to keep the system reliable and secure. It noted that those already constructed large-scale solar farms had not been connected to the network due to concerns about the impact on the system security and reliability. Uh, at budget estimates in late June, uh, which you know the last week, week before, had revealed that Power and Water Corporation uh, could not put a time frame on when those solar farms would be fully connected to the grid. But it's clear that they need to do upgrades to, to make sure that this happens, and the government just isn't doing this. Now, these there were also revelations, uh, budget estimates. We saw that the Power and Water Corporation. Had asked for the federal energy regulator to approve an 8% annual increase uh, every year over the next five years. So our rates are going to go up 40%, but we might not even have any power to be paying for here. The report predicted here that the risk that the government will not be able to maintain the Darwin Catherine power system as early as 26, 27 due to falling minimum demand during the day as, quote, a result of increasing amounts of electricity from uncontrollable residential and commercial rooftop solar PV systems. Yeah. Expanding on this, it said the increase in residential solar power generation brought, quote, new technical challenges that need to be managed, but did not elaborate further. Well, it said several of the current large gas generators in Darwin were also aging and due to be shut down in the next few years. Yeah, uh, th this is it. Now, this is the, the Darwin Catherine mainline for us up here. Now, in Alice yeah. Springs, the power system also forecast to have high outage rates, in part because of less power being generated at the Owen Springs station in the initial years of the outlook following the closing of the Ron Gooden power station from the end of 2025 in Tenant Creek. Good news for our friends in Tenant Creek. They don't get a lot of it these days. The commissioner predicted electricity consumption and maximum and minimum system demand was forecast to remain relatively constant over the outlook period. So it looks like things there might be okay. Uh, we're in trouble here, though, and this is it. Now, the report says significant new investment would be needed to successfully move to greater renewable generation, and that the files government has, quote, acknowledged the challenge and urgency and was responding, but was severely critical of the weak action taken. Uh, he said there is little change to the findings and message in the 2022 electricity report compared to previous reports. 
Mm. Other than the challenges and emerging risks to the territory's power systems are another year closer to materializing in the absence of appropriate, committed, funded, and timely delivered solutions. Mm. Maddening. A couple of things on that, Chris. Uh, One is the new technology they refer to. Certainly was new. A while, a <laughs> yeah, while back when ago. It should have been dealing with it, y'all. Yeah. And the issue they're having is uh, it's th- this generation they refer to. It's not the systems generating power that's the issue. It's getting the power from the systems into the grid. That's always been the problem. And it's why we've seen hotspots and we've seen transformers blowing up in and around Darwin Palmerston when too much generation is being pumped back into the grid. So this is not new. I mean, it's newish technology, but this is just lack of action, which is why this is occurring. They are doing nothing. They're looking after themselves while the crime crisis rages on and yeah. while our utilities will be failing very soon. Yeah. What the hell? How do we have a $9 billion, $10 billion debt with nothing to show for it? We couldn't even improve infrastructure. Yeah, and, this, and this complete pie in the sky, 40 billion economy by 2030. I mean, where you can't even keep the lights on. They'll probably get a bit of rent out of uh, Howard Springs. So that'll be part of it. And then I was just (laughs) thinking as you're talking, the other way they're going to do it is they're going to up the rates by 40%. But the power won't work. So that's pure profit, right? Because it doesn't cost them to run the power when it's not working, but they're still charging you. At least at the daily rate, they can't charge you for usage if you're not getting it. But well, it, it's maddening, and it, it's, and it is because it would have cost less speed too. What you were saying about the the new technology that was older than that, if they had it done it then, it would have cost less. Correct, it's going to cost now. Correct, it's, it's so hard to retrofit, particularly this you know far away, uh, you know since it's been first installed. The other thing too that's really really annoying is this constant. The government acknowledges and is working on. They acknowledge <laughs> everything and working on everything. They don't do anything. No, I know. Yeah, as if that that sort of placate us, that would placate yeah. us. It, it doesn't anymore. If it ever did, it surely yeah. doesn't now. Where we don't even believe a word that the chief minister says anymore. Correct. That's how bad her reputation is. And yep. and you know, look here. And just this was the last line on the report here uh, in David's story. The commission has been warning for several years. The delays in meeting the emerging challenges and risks of the territory's power systems means less time to respond, which may increase risks and costs and ultimately negatively impact territory electricity consumers and taxpayers. Yeah. yeah. So when are they going to do something here? What are you, I mean, I don't know where we're compiling the, the, the brief of evidence, the affidavit here on just how bad this government is and that they have to go down as the worst in the history of, of Australia. Um Really, and every day, the dossier is getting bigger and bigger. But to neglect utilities like electricity for years when they've been told, they've been in the in power seven years, they were being told, but you got to do this, you got to do that. And they said, oh, well, you know what? Renewable energy, that's what we want. Yeah, yeah, and we're going to bring it. And how are you going to do that? Well, they had no plan. They had no idea. They just yes. said it. And this this report just shows everything here. It's just a joke, an absolute farce, this government. It is, but is there anything that we're going to talk about that, uh, you know, is not only acknowledged but actually worked on in any of these sort of stories? Well, they're always working on it, but, yeah, anything that they're going to solve? No, I I would love to write a story that they've somehow solved this. 
Like, that would be great. I really want to be. I honestly want to write. I need to write something positive at some point here. Yeah. Because, I mean, the stuff's just looking so grim and so bad. I would love to do that. But they, but they, they don't. And the fact that even just with this issue that they've dragged us on for that long, where it's only going to cost us more and increase risk. Mm. They can't, even, even if they did something now, still we'd have to say, why the hell did Mia do it four years ago? Anyway, yeah, I, yeah this is really bad, man. Yeah, it is. And look, I was in Darwin, um, you know, 20 years ago or thereabouts when blackouts were pretty common, particularly during the wet, and we'd often get them during the dry as well. Mm. Thankfully, they didn't last for hours and hours and hours on end. But listen, you've only got to um, catch yeah, some of Trevor Noah's stand-up comedy to hear about what it's like in South Africa, where it happens every single day. Jesus, what are we getting compared to South Africa? Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, I know, well, but yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that's the only place I can yeah. compare it to because that's exactly what it's like over there. And, you know, then, then we've got these other things that we're referring to, uh, you know, um, prohibiting media and communications people from telling the full story. This is coming from other countries that we don't really want to aspire to be like. Yeah, right. It's uh, it's only getting worse. This is not good. Yeah, Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Look, I don't know. I don't know. We need some sort of federal help on this here now because these guys have really screwed us. We are way worse off than we were even at the last election in 2020. Yeah. Um, yep. And Chris, I think it's really important to mention as well. Um, you, you told me previously regarding uh, you guys were taken a little bit, um, uh, you know, someone had taken issue with one of your stories saying that, you know, it's all well and good to report these things, but you've got to give the government the right of reply. <laughs> so let's just give that a brief mention because I think that was a really important, you know, point. Uh, yes, you yeah. One of our favorite readers who never actually reads us said something like that. And this was about the fuel card words. He said, well, I don't care what government it is. You still got to give them the right of reply. We're just saying, look, again, I think we've been very upfront about this. We go to them every time. We go to the government. Now, this was just a report. This was just a quick rewrite of a report to the Utilities Commission. But every other story that we've talked about here, we've gone to the government. And yep. we've said, and then, the, yeah, so the utilities, that, that story is just about that report. So it's just, here are the facts. Now, yep. we may have another story where the government wants to comment on it. I'm guessing they're not going to comment on it, <laughs> um, even to the other media. And if the other media even asks them about it, um, and the opposition can't really, you know, want to get that in both sides then. But, uh, uh, yeah, so, no, we do. And with those fuel card word stories and with Monaghan, even though I was I trying to ask him questions at the airport, um, I still email them questions too because we always do that. You just that's just something that you need to do as a journalist is that we do offer that right of reply and we we want the stories to be balanced. We want them to be complete. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I had a successful meeting with another uh, organization. I think I can talk about that. I think I think I yeah. Look, I just will um, CDU. I met with Scott Bowman. Um, this week and it was a very positive conversation. I explained to him, you know, he had written something a while back, one of his musings to staff about how he didn't much care for the NT independent and he wasn't going to comment, provide us comment on stuff. Yeah. Right? So I got in touch with him and I said, Scott, you know, um, here's who I am. Let's, let's have a meeting and discuss this. Cause if you weren't happy with us, just give us a call. 
and we could have had a, a discussion. And so he was good. And he said, yeah, okay, let's do that. Let's meet up. So we met up. Um, and I explained to him how the anti-independent came into being, um, you know, some of my background, the fact that we've beaten anti-news and ABC the last two years for best news coverage. Um, and, uh, uh, and how, you know, the focus on us wanted to, it's old fashioned journalism, it's old fashioned investigative journalism where we're going to go and dig into things that, that certain people, powerful people, maybe don't want getting out publicly. Yeah. But as I explained to him, we'll always go to people because we're, we're obligated to do that as journalists. We want to get your side in the story. You explain this. You tell us, you tell us why you met with the Chinese ambassador <laughs> in this case, right? And so, um, and so he understood that, and uh, and he said, "Well, hey, let, let's let's start a new page here, and let's just um, let's do this, and let's talk until the time." Let's, let's crack a fortune cookie and move forward. <laughs> yeah. He said, "Let's start a new page, and uh, until such time as you piss us off to the point that we all get in a big argument, and then we'll just start another new page." And I said, "Look, hey, that's the right attitude to have here, because like I explained to him, we don't believe journalism is quid pro quo." You know, we don't think that if you do this, we'll do this for you. And then sometime you might have to do this. We think let's just get everything out there. And if sometimes it's bad news, sometimes bad news, if it's good news, sometimes good news. Um, uh, either way, the public needs to know this stuff. And that's why the NT Independent exists. And we will always still be to this day. I still go to these jokers, the labor ministers, who are politicians and their media people. And I say, okay. Here are the questions, guys. Um, we still want to give you a chance to respond. And uh, and they don't, um, which is too bad because I think even, you know, at CDU, I think Scott uh, got that, that it was, um, that it's more important than, you know, instead of this disengage and discredit stuff where, you know, Monaghan was very guilty of that. He, he didn't answer any of our questions for fuel cards. He got up at estimates and called us a social media platform or something like you know he tried to make it look as if we're not a legitimate news agency yeah which case i'd love to remind him that we've won three and yeah. <laughs> media awards in the last two years but uh yeah. including for best news coverage but you know but that's you don't want to do that because no but they're not going to win then and i think chalker i think with police there you saw that too we we still went to chalker yeah. Time we did a story that he wouldn't like, and we said, "Jamie, here, we want to give you a chance to respond. Here's what's being said. Here's what the facts are. Go ahead. We will report. I don't know how many times I've done that with all of them. Yeah, Still yeah. do it for this day because it's the right thing to do, Pete. I know they're not going to respond, but it's the right thing to do. And they can never say, "Well, you didn't let us do it," even though I mean, they wouldn't have an argument right now because they've ignored me for so long. I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah. Maybe one day they'll respond. One day, Kate Warden um, answered my questions at a press conference. You know, yeah. so it might happen someday. But I'll, I'll keep doing it because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, that's right. And as I've said previously on this podcast, I think it now reflects really poorly on them. And the fact that they don't bother to have the right of reply or to give a response to the questions, uh, it it seeks. Uh, well, I guess it puts the reader in that position of, well, why wouldn't they reply? It it then <laughs> other questions, you know? Well, yeah, and, and it's like that too, that, you know, when you're a journalist and, and, and people don't respond, you're supposed to write, like they refuse to respond. And we do that <laughs> sometimes. 
But then I was looking at it and I was like, it just sounds even worse if you just say they declined to respond. <laughs> like it yeah. just it even seems like that's more, that's worse in some way. But yeah. I don't know. But, you know, we're, we give them the opportunity they can explain to the public. I think, you know, we, we just let our reporting speak for itself. And I think people are getting it and know that they can come to us that we're trusted. We're not, we're not the ones who are complicit in this stuff with the government yeah. to the point that we're banned and we're, and you know, they're trying to destroy us financially with that. And, you know, yeah. we've been, we've been down all that, but anyway, we'll keep going. It's the right thing to do. There's one other reply I've seen a few times in, in certain publications. I'm not sure if it's the NT independent, it may be as well, but certainly with a couple of, um, national papers is they say that the um, they put the questions to whoever the person or organization or government was and they failed to respond. Yeah, yeah that's another good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've used that before too. Yeah. I would chalk her a lot for some reason. It's so slack with their work, they failed to respond to the deadline. <laughs> they didn't get their assignment in on time. It's very good. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right, look, let's move to um, a bit of a local story now in relation to a business. A popular burger place was taken to court by the Fair Work Ombudsman yeah. over apprentice wage shortfall. What happened here? Yes, well, it appears. I think a lot of people have been down to uh, Good Thanks. That's the burger place there. On, uh, where did we say it was? Nucky Street? Nucky Street, Nucky. I believe, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, look, this has come out now. The Fair Work Ombudsman put out a statement here that they will be taking the owners to court. Uh, now, this stems from an issue where there was a uh, an apprentice cook who they allegedly failed to pay his wages over three years during his registered training part of the apprenticeship. So I think it was a couple months at a time or something. It might have been over those three months, work out to six months. Over those three years, work out to six months or something. But um, anyway, apparently, uh, this is uh, the Fair Work Ombudsman, Sandra Parker, said in a statement that the company that owns the Territory Tough, they're called, incidentally, not owned by Natasha yeah. Files. Um, <laughs> remember, she said that I'm Territory Tough, but yeah, no, she's yeah, not yeah. in this case. Uh, anyway, it is a well known labor hangout, though. Make it that way, Will. Uh, faced a fine of up to uh, the company now will face a fine of up to $33,300 for allegedly failing to comply with a compliance notice over the alleged underpayment. So, you know, back, they, they, I guess they, uh, the authority began investigating after a young worker who was employed at the restaurant as a full time chef uh, between May 2019 and June 22 complained. Uh, the worker was aged between 17 and 20 at the time, was doing commercial cookery apprenticeship. Um, so a compliance notice was issued to this company that owns uh, Good Thanks called Territory Tough in October 22. Uh, so last October with the authority accusing the company of not paying the worker wages uh, for time spent attending registered training as part of his apprenticeship as required under the Restaurant Industry Award 2010 and Restaurant Industry Award 2020. So uh, they were given that. They just said, yeah, screw you, we're not going to do anything about this. So the Fair Work Ombudsman now alleges territory tough with no reasonable excuse, failed to comply with that compliance notice, which required it to calculate and back pay the workers' entitlement. So they just didn't want to do that. And now they'll be going to the Darwin Federal Circuit Court for July 24th. Um, which will now the regulators seeking an order for them to rectify the alleged underpayments in full, plus interest in superannuation. Um, 
Yeah. So where employers, they say, this is Parker said, uh, where employers do not comply, we will take appropriate action to protect employees. A court can order a business to pay penalties in addition to back paying workers. So basically, when you get that notice, just just pay it. It's going to be cheaper in the long run here because now you've got legal thing costs. You've got uh, yeah. these penalties now for not uh, abiding by it. So. You're yeah. still going to have to pay the original amount. Now you've got the fines on top of that. Yeah. Um, here's a question you might not know the answer to. Interesting amount, 33000 So does that mean they're charging 30000 plus GST or is it just a random amount of 33000 Yeah, that I, I don't know, Pete. I didn't actually read that statement today. I didn't write this one. In the Woody pit, but um, yeah, uh, not sure on that. I'll get back no to you. But I know that, that down further it did say that it was – yeah, if that was a penalty because they do want the underpayments paid in full in plus addition in superannuation. Yeah, I guess. In yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, pretty hefty. Some good advice there from you, Chris. Just pay pay the initial amount so you don't have to cop the fine. Yeah, right. and and you know, respect your apprentices. You know, just and, treat uh, them well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, speaking of which, not regarding apprentices, but uh, another story which is. An interesting one that took me by surprise with the NT WorkSafe inspectors, Chris, now using body-worn cameras for worksite visits in the NT. Yeah, that's right. Um, you just get the sense this is going to anger a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of business owners when um, yes. WorkSafe rocks up and they they got cameras and you're being recorded now, sir. Um, yeah. I don't think that that's <laughs> they're going to like that very much now. But of course, the uh, the workplace regulator and <laughs> the WorkSafe is saying is that it will be part of a six month trial that they'll be wearing body worn cameras to attend work sites and for other operational activities. So that could include talking to the public, <laughs> could include uh, all kinds of things. Anyway, the organization said all inspectors have undertaken the required training on the use of body-worn cameras and management of body-worn camera records. So remember they've been this. Shown how to pit, they've been shown how to hit record and pause? Yeah, well, and I think lighting has to, it's all production. <laughs> Hang on, I'm just going to get my ring light out. while. I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, look, when, when you get into that, when you're talking about required training and then management of the records of that, it's like, oh, okay, that's right. You're going to have this stuff. Now, is this going to be FOIable? You know, for, for a journalist, I like this idea that yeah. uh, we may be able to FOI this stuff. But uh, according to their policy, so we went and checked out their policy, inspectors will notify a person that they're being recorded. However, quote, uh, if it is not practical, practicable to do so before or at the time of the interaction, the disclosure will be provided as soon as it's reasonably practicable after activating the recording. So, um, yeah, whatever that means, that sounds like a gray area. That sounds like there's a lot in there. The policy that could probably be picked apart by a good lawyer. Yeah. Um, the cameras will be used to capture evidence when inspectors are, quote, exercising a power or performing a function and during conversations with members of the public, quote, which may relate to an incident notification and or safety concern and or the information being obtained is relevant to an investigation. So ND WorkSafe said the cameras would improve efficiencies, accountability, and would provide added security for inspectors during workplace visits. Mm. Um, now, the, yeah, with Peggy Chong, the executive director, said these body-worn cameras will assist our inspectors to collect information and evidence 
during a workplace visit. It will also add, she said, a level of accountability, allowing our managers to review an inspector's interactions during a workplace visit and quickly resolve any concerns or complaints made against an inspector. And then she said, and importantly, increase the level of safety as our inspectors do their work. Mm-hmm. Now, she made no reference to any specific specific incidents that led to the need for increased safety for work work safe inspectors, but said research had shown, shown that uh, using body-worn cameras helped reduce the risk of violence and aggression towards law enforcement officers. Uh, this extra layer of protection will enable them to do their job without fear of being harmed. I, I, I didn't know. This is like, are they facing a lot of hostility? I imagine they might. Uh, yeah, you know, maybe yeah. by the sound of it. I know that we've talked body-worn footage previously, Chris, in uh, other stories in the last year or two or mm-hmm. three, possibly, mm-hmm. and uh, we know it could be quite controversial at times. So yeah. let's, let's hope they're not facing, uh, you know, at work undue violence for no particular reason other than the fact that they're doing their jobs. Yeah, and then, and then yeah, they said that if someone, and this again would be a legal thing, if someone does not want to be recorded, WorkSafe said it would note their objection. <laughs> uh, anyway. yeah, however, under they say under the Work Health and Safety Act, it said inspectors have the power to make records, including photographs, films, audio, video, and digital recordings. Um, but they said inspectors will not make recording of private activities in the workplace. Whatever that means. Uh, um, but yeah, look, I, I think that whole thing, noting their uh, lawyers probably have issues with that. Anyway, we'll see what happens. There was something, the recordings may then be released through freedom of information laws after they're stored in a secure evidence management system and managed in accordance with relevant legislation, then we can have to file them. So, yeah, and of course, now that it says it won't be recording anything in a private situation, you know it will. <laughs> that is absolutely right. <laughs> you know how it is, Chris. That's how my sense of humor works. <laughs> yeah, no, <it's> great. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Now, the NT WorkSafe feature again in the next article. We, we talked a few weeks ago about uh, how an amusement ride operator got themselves into hot water. And uh, probably not as a result of that, but just as a result of the fact that it is obviously regional show season. Uh, compliance checks on rides are underway, Chris. That's right. And uh, I guess that they decided they were going to put out a statement on this and WorkSafe because of recent incidences. And uh, you remember that um, one of these guys who was operating rides, I think it was at the Fred's Pass show and somewhere else, uh, got into a bit of trouble here when people got hurt and that he had just failed to comply with an improvement notice issued about the state of his amusement rides in 2021. And I was uh, following the other incident by the same operator that caused injury to a woman and a child in 2019 on one of these mm. rural shows. So, yeah, NT WorkSafe uh, putting it out there that they're cracking down, it sounds like. I, I mean, this is like I would expect that they were doing this. You would think so, wouldn't no, you? No, the time. You know, when I when I lived with Carnies for a while, um, <laughs> That was. I didn't check anything by choice. (laughs) No, they were the the guys that I was with in Atlantic Canada. They were pretty good about that stuff. One of the good points that I think I I brought this up with you before, Pete, that they always said was because those rides are moving, you can, and you know, you got to tear them down and then set them up that you can start to see defects, you can start to see issues. And that's probably safer than going sometimes 
to an amusement park where things are stationary and have been there yeah. for a while. It might be yeah. safer. Um, and I think a lot of them do the right thing. But uh, yeah, it's good to have the, the workplace regulator out there ensuring that everything because, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's really scary when, you know, you got families on there. Like, Correct. Uh, you just, you got to make sure it's safe. I think most of the guys do. Um, there was this guy um, who just didn't hear. Uh, uh, what was his name here? It was, it was, and it was just last week, I think it was revealed that amusement ride operator Tyrone Troy Taylor had set up several amusement rides at Carew Park to operate a carnival on August 21, was issued several improvement notices for his rides by anti-worksafe inspectors due to maintenance concerns. He was already before the courts uh, facing charges over the 2019 octopus ride malfunction at the Fred's Bass Show. I think a lot of people remember that one which injured two passengers. Um, yeah, and then I think it, improvement notices are one of the tools available in T-WorkSafe, said to inspectors to ensure compliance with the work health and safety laws. Inspectors will issue an improvement notice if they form a reasonable belief that there's been a contravention of the laws that could create a risk to health and safety. So um, they're going to be out there. Again, follow those compliance things. It's easier in the long run for everybody, and you want people to be safe. And it is, you know, yeah, it's not good when you, 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 yeah, you're done in that kind of field once you, it gets too serious. And Correct. And I don't mean, I don't mean to make light of this situation, but if ever uh, this situation was to be proven or this theory was to be proven that you want to do your checks and get all that in place to make sure everything's okay, I think we all are familiar with the Ocean Gate submarine situation and uh, mm -hmm. you know that's a really great example of when you get some renegade that says no i know how to do it better than anybody else yeah this yeah 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 absolutely and then people are going to get hurt yeah and then needlessly so yeah interesting. And, uh, yep. interesting point you make though about those carnies because uh yeah it makes sense when uh, just with electronic equipment such as the dj gear that i've used over the years you know when your speaker wires are getting, you know, weaker and weaker and when you need to change them and change plugs and different things. So it makes total sense with, with um, you know, I guess it's mainly metal rides. Um, that would be in that same situation as you're pulling them apart. Yeah, all the little things, all the pins and that kind yeah, of stuff yeah. and little wear and tear and fractures and stuff you can detect easier. Yeah, That's what the boys told me when I was uh, living with them for a while at uh, – first book that i wrote where i lived with the carney so makes yeah. total sense all right well um let's hope that we don't talk about any stories in coming weeks where they find things that they shouldn't yeah i hope not yeah uh let's move to another story our lucky last before we get to the finest segment of the week that people just like yell and scream at us about chris <laughs> um i don't want to oversell it um but, uh, mining fern tibbon has uh, chosen to do its mining in Western Australia over its Mount Peak deposits here in the NT. Yeah, this is one of those things, too, Pete, where I don't think we saw Nicole Madison putting out a statement about this one or any comment. Um, no no um, public statement saying mining, mining, mining? <laughs> yeah, jobs, 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 which won't be happening here, here, here any longer. Uh, look, yeah, look, uh, the, the Tiven critical minerals company Tibbon announced it will be focusing on mining its Western Australian deposit 
Uh, now, this means essentially shelving mining at its, at its NT Mount Peak development, even giving up access routes to the Robosa. Mm-hmm. So that seems serious. Now, the company has said it still has plans for a pilot minerals processing plant at Darwin Harbor's middle arm. You remember they were part of, they were one of the companies mentioned by files a few weeks back about uh, a deal, no deal, and whatever it was, <laughs> a deal or no deal, deal with them. No deal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, where essentially they're promising them some land here if things get, uh, if they want to get involved with middle arm. Um, and that middle arm thing, you've seen the Guardian stuff on that, on these FOI documents a couple of weeks ago. I mean, it's just got bad publicity now written all over it that they were, you know, um, hiring, spending taxpayer money to hire these big lobbying companies to get money from the feds to do this thing that, um, uh, what's his name, Andrew Liveris was involved with and, and his mates and it's all about gas and petrochemicals. <laughs> And and then and we just went along with that and said, yeah, cool. Anyway, look, Tivin, <laughs> Tivin's still saying it might be a player in that, but uh, Grant Wilson, the executive chairman, said the company purchased about a, a, well, yeah, 100% of the Spiwa project on April 11th for $20 million from King River Resources. And the board now rec- recognized it as Tivin's flagship project and was prioritizing its development as the core mission of the company. Um, now, this is a titanium, uh, vanadium, titanium, and iron deposit about 100 kilometers south of the port town of Wyndham in the Kimberley region in northwest Western Australia. So Wilson said the company would retain a, its Mount Peak, um, the vanadium, titanium, and iron lease uh, about 230 kilometers north of Alice Springs. But development planning work would be limited, at least in the short term. Uh, yeah, now... Yeah, why were, were there certain things? I mean, that was still kind of unclear. Were there certain things the NT government could have done to uh, to make this better? Did it have something to do with their policies, their mining royalty regime? You know, um, anyway, uh, he's saying, though, that, however, these initial ore samples from the Spiwa project would be processed at the planned potential, if it ever happens, pilot project at Middle Arm on Darwin Harbor someday, possibly. Um, but to reduce its costs, the company said it would surrender secondary mineral leases and the two access routes, uh, including for a haul road, which were e- earlier granted by the NT government when it was showing its support of the Mount Peak development. Um, yeah, so uh, right now they've deferred the time frame for any development or mining activity on the ground at Mount Peak. The, um, the, the uh, CEO had said the board believes it is a prudent decision to relinquish this ancillary tenure and significantly reduce holdings costs for the company. Right. So no NT for the time being. No, doesn't sound like it. And, uh, geez, that's just another one that you don't want to see. You know, like, like yeah. um, Madison was up there at Estimate saying, trying to say, we're, we're really focused on this. We're changing them. We want mining. We need mining for the future here. And yet here she is screwing up another portfolio because <laughs> well, she's, not, she's not brought in anything else. There's been no new mines, right? And if this one's yeah. one where they're pulling out, well, it's not, not very good. We're going to have to tick that off the $40 billion economy. So, Well, yeah, further proof that that's not Have so we good. got anything that's going to contribute? I know. <laughs> other than the rent at Howard Springs. Yeah, I just want something positive, Pete. I'm with you. I really want something good to happen here. And, uh, 
I don't know how that happens, especially with a government that's just this far down in the toilet. There's no way to reach up. You know, when we're, they're reaching up for things now, it's pretty low. And Yeah. Uh, anyway, it's just disappointing. Well, if you're after good news, Chris, you've come to the right place. Just hold Excellent. on. And now, it's time for the job files. Thanks to no one in particular. All right, Chris, the job files job of the week this week. Now, you won't be surprised to learn that uh, it is a marketing role, but (laughs) what you might be surprised to learn that it's a brand and marketing role, marketing manager, in fact, for the Power and Water Corporation. What's interesting and really got my interest about this role is the job ad is exactly five lines long. Mm. Normally these things are uh, Mm. the equivalent to War and Peace. (laughs) In this particular case, it literally just says uh, it's a permanent role and ongoing, full-time. The primary objective is to lead the development and delivery of brand, marketing, and communication strategies, plans, and campaigns to achieve Paramwater Corporation's business objectives, purpose, and vision. They don't even know what that is. <laughs> it's, it's just beautifully vague. Yeah, the um, company doesn't know. It's mm. special instructions in there about diversity, etc. And it just says, it doesn't even say for more information, it just says contact Rebecca on 0418-683-696. Does not mention how much money, so it's a mozza. Yeah, yeah, power and water. And that was the job. So I'm like, is this a placeholder for when you actually put the real job up or <laughs> is this is this the job in its uh, yeah, you know, I, yeah, in its condensed sense then yeah. uh, this really is the essence of the job. Um <laughs> it's yeah, that 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 company is so troubled. Um, like just it's such a, a mess, you know. Like they can't even sign off on their financials every year, and that's yeah. probably why, because they're paying two hundred and some thousand probably for this role. But yeah, <laughs> and it really got my interest because, of course, we've only just started talking about brand and marketing managers in recent weeks, as you know. Yeah, and I thought, no, I got to mention this. this is, <laughs> yeah, this has got to be the job of the week. It does, and it is. Yeah, because I, yeah, I think. Yeah, anyway, nobody knows really Power and Water and what they do. Like, we, we know essentially what they do, but this whole thing of their branding and, and, and describing what they do and kind of better public relations and stuff, I, they, they're a very secretive organization. Like, they don't want to be involved in anything really here. They want to go and mismanage millions of dollars of taxpayer money. And, uh, yeah, it just had no scrutiny. So that job would be good if you want to sit around and do nothing, I would suggest. And, and it, further to your comment, and I'm happy to be shouted down about this, but given that Paramorta is essentially now the wholesaler to Jakarta, I don't yeah. understand why they need to market anything because <laughs> it's not their job to market. And uh, I know, yeah. And then they still keep showing up. Like there, there should be ways that they can find efficiencies by getting rid of some people there. And I think that's what they should be looking at. Yeah, um, but they don't. It's very weird. Anyway, Chris, <laughs> what can we uh, look forward to from you next week? Um, unfortunately, more... Um, <laughs> Misconduct in like some of the most senior offices in this place in yeah. the land. 
Um, yeah, and you know the fact that people knew about it and did nothing about it. That, that's the thing that's been bothering me for the last week since I read some emails and mm. I've seen some things about this. Uh, another story that we'll we'll be getting up soon was just how people know about it. They don't have to be people in positions of power yeah. to say something. It's just that like people see what goes on here and they're in positions where they should say something, but they don't. They just go along with it because mm. everybody's happy. Everybody's getting paid. And what the hell is the the point, right? If everybody's happy, well, you know, it, it, this is why we've gotten to this point because people who are in positions where they could do something or just even say something don't, yeah. and then it becomes acceptable. This behavior becomes acceptable, and that's where we're at now. That we're all accepting this conduct from this government. Mm. Um, uh, it's just, it's really, it's really, it really is bothering me, Pete. I got to be honest with you. Like this yeah. week, I've just been thinking about that. Why aren't more people saying something or doing something about this? And, um, you know, I don't know. And I'm not going to, you know, I guess people do what they can do. I know we get a lot of people supporting us. And I think that's one good thing that, that you know, keeps me motivated to continue to do this stuff uh, supporting us in many different ways you know but just writing and and, um, and reading us and uh, and, and uh, having discussions with people in the community about the stuff that we're breaking and that the, yeah. needs to be discussed that the other media is clearly suppressing as well so um yeah i, I hate getting that way man but but you know you got to keep exposing it. We have to keep exposing this stuff. And so we'll continue to do that um, because people need to know how really, really bad this place has become. And uh, and I I really want to see it succeed and do better. But until we can show what the problem is and address all of those problems, Mm -hmm. we're not going to be able to fix it. That's what I think. I don't, I don't, subscribe to the government's idea, Files' idea, that um, we can just cover it up and pretend it's not happening because yeah. you see where that's getting us now and, and things are getting really bad here and people are, you know, it's a dangerous situation sometimes mm. and uh, for safety and everything else. So anyway, we'll keep uh, shining lights in those dark corners, my friend, and uh, we'll be back to have conversations with you about it all. Sounds good, mate. I look forward to catching up next week. Great. Thanks, people. See you then. That was Chris Walsh from the NT Independent Online Newspaper. Weekends with Walshie back again next week on the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition. Have a good week and we'll catch you then. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast Weekend Edition with Peter Gowers. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. For more episodes, go to all your favourite podcasting platforms or head to territorystory.com.